Well, good morning to you, whether we're here, the faithful remnant, who are scattered here inside the sanctuary, or whether you're sitting at home, a welcome to our service this Sunday morning. We are thankful both to the Scottish Government, but also to God himself, that we are continuing to be allowed to be open. Obviously, numbers are restricted, but we always were working with that lower number in mind, and so we're able to meet here, not just today, but during the week. And so I continue to remind you that the church is open on a Tuesday morning, a Wednesday evening and a Thursday morning, both for private prayer, but also for these devotionals. And somebody asked me during the week, what's the difference between a devotional and the Sunday morning sermon and service? Well, the Sunday morning sermon is, I hope, in a wee bit more thoughtful and a bit more in-depth and meant to provide us kind of basis for reflections in the coming week. The devotionals are what they say. They're devotionals. They're based on the prayer guide and they're a thought for the day. And I know those who've been coming along to them have found them helpful. And especially if you're working and you're needing time out from things, then I encourage you on a Wednesday evening to take time um, just to come and be quiet yourself and also just to hear God's word for that day. So I commend these opportunities and our fellowship groups will continue as well because they're well below the number 20. Again, we've been working in small numbers. And so it's only for a few weeks anyway, but we're thankful that we can carry on. Um, just to say this week that we will be meeting as a court session just to reflect on how we hope to do communion um, over the Christmas period or towards the Christmas period. That will be for those who have been able to come out. We're not wanting to force people or um, drag people out from their homes. Um, but for those who are able to come out, we will be providing it. But it won't be on a Sunday morning. It will be at the times during the week that I've mentioned earlier. And more details about that will be given once we've had the session meeting on Tuesday evening. Um, just one other intimation. Um, I don't particularly watch um, Nicola and Co. on the television most days, um, but many of you will be familiar with Jason Leach, the National Clinical Director, who's on um, often, um, giving his comments and, and input. Um, but one of our own members is now Jason's deputy. John Harden is now the Deputy Clinical Director. Um, he's done well for himself, and he has a position of responsibility, and we want to assure John of our prayers and of our encouragement for him as he takes on that important role. He's actually been doing it for a month. I think, Scott, was it you that noticed him on television a, a week or so ago? He's been doing it for a wee while, but I only found out this week, and so we want to convey to John our prayers and um, celebrate, congratulate him on this um, significant post that he has been given at this challenging time. I think that's really all the notices and intimations. So let's pray together. And as we come together this morning, and probably for most of us, this period of lockdown, this three-week period of lockdown, and then whatever happens after that in the run-up to Christmas, perhaps isn't a major change in what we've been doing. We've not been running about much. We've not necessarily been going out to shops or whatever a lot. But we are mindful of those whose businesses have had to close, mindful of those who are finding the restrictions increasingly a burden, but also mindful of those at the other end of the spectrum, those who are working in the intensive care units in our hospitals and dealing with those who have taken the virus and are chronically ill with it, and critically ill with it. And so we gather before you, O God, our Father, our nation, and its diversity, its need, our world, and its diversity and need. We come thanking you for the encouraging news we hear about a vaccine, but we also come conscious of the responsibility then to be ensure that that is given out globally 
to those who not only can afford it, but those who can't, to the vast majority of the world who probably can't, and also how practically it will be run through and worked out in our own country. Lord, many responsibilities. We do think of John Harden, our own member, who's got a high position of responsibility, and his colleague, Jason Leach. We pray for our First Minister and her government, and for the Prime Minister and his government, and for all the different parts of our United Kingdom as they seek to discern a way forward to ensure that in some way people will be able to celebrate Christmas with at least some members of their family. Lord, as we remember all these things, we're aware of that need of wisdom from above. For the leaders of the nations, as well as for ourselves in daily life. And we gather before you, O God. And we hear this part of your work taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No. There is no other rock I know not one. And we would join with your people throughout our nation and in our world again on this Lord's Day. And we as your witnesses would say, no, there is no other rock. We know not one. And so we offer your worship. We say sorry for our sins. We seek your mercy and are open to receive your word of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. We'll hear our first song. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we have this period of many lockdown, commentators remark on how well in many ways our society indeed not just western society but the world generally has done with the restrictions that we've all had to go through over these past eight or nine months there was concern at the beginning that we just simply wouldn't put up with restrictions and that there would be mass riots and demonstrations and while now in some parts of the world not so much obvious in Britain, but certainly in some parts of Europe and elsewhere, that is now beginning to appear for the vast majority of the population in the UK, in Scotland. We have been, with one or two mild deviations at times, um, law keepers. And we have followed the restrictions. So I look out in a congregation, you're all sitting duly masked and socially distanced. 
And, 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 and rightly so. And, and the vast majority of people, as I say, have done that. Of course, there's various reasons for that. One of it, of course, is fear, especially at the beginning when we heard these horror stories and saw the, the realities within our accident emergency units and elsewhere, uh, we, we were rightly concerned that if we went out the door, perhaps, well, COVID-19 was just waiting to, to seize us and to grab us and to drag us off. And some of us, you people, who were unwell and some very seriously ill, although we are very thankful as a congregation uh, that, that no one within our own fellowship has passed on with the disease, but others do know people. I, as you know, conducted a funeral for someone who did die because of COVID-19. And the fear of that, the very understandable fear of that, had an effect of making us and forcing us, in a sense, to comply with the regulations. And then a sense of social and community responsibility. We don't want to be a transmitter of disease. We don't want to be a carrier of disease. And so therefore our awareness of the community and our responsibility to others would encourage us and enable us to follow the regulations and to do what we're meant to do. And then ultimately, well, the state has told us, and there is a debate, and there's various questions as to how legal some of the regulations are and what regulations are actually law and which are recommendations. There's a big debate about that, but nonetheless, the vast majority of citizens are law-abiding and they follow the rule of the state. Not because the state actually, in reality, could enforce the regulations. The government knows that. There's not enough police and there's not enough army, and indeed there's a reluctance amongst the police and indeed the army, um, apart from very obvious breaches, to enforce the regulations. There's no barricade separating this part of Uddingston from the bit of Uddingston up the hill. Um, even though people from North Lanarkshire, I'm just looking around to make sure there's no lawbreakers here, but there is one. And there is one. Um, there's two. There's two. There's two lawbreakers. Well, it's for your spiritual health and well-being. That's my answer to you. For your spiritual health and well-being, you've journeyed. But you take the point. There's no barricade separating people. Uh, obviously, that's a perfectly understandable movement from North Uddingston to South Uddingston. But you take the point. But people do it nonetheless. And the authority of the state, especially in a democracy, depends on public support, upon public encouragement and agreement and consensus. That's essential, because without that in a democracy, well, power would soon disappear and dissipate. If you follow, and I appreciate not everybody would follow the story of Holy Week from that perspective, and as I explained last Sunday, we're looking at some of the teachings and events of Holy Week as we enter into Advent, and hopefully at the end of this short series, under the title, Who is He? Then we'll have a better understanding of why we're doing that. But the stories of Holy Week show, actually, it's, it's, there's a strange paradox. The one person who appeared to have public support and had the public waiting just to do what he wanted to do at the beginning of Holy Week was Jesus. We saw last Sunday as he journeyed in Jerusalem, widespread spread public acclaim and recognition of his authority. They even quoted, although barely understood, the, the messianic passages from the Psalms as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. If Jesus had stood for election on Palm Sunday, he would have won overwhelmingly. And yet, and there can be few politicians, including even our own politicians, who have had such a disastrous week as Jesus did in a sense. 
because he may well have been voted into office and would have had public recognition of his power and authority in Palm Sunday, but we all know that by Friday it had completely gone. And not just gone, but it actually had gone the opposite direction. From publicly recognition his authority, there was a public rejection of his authority. We will not have, the crowd shouted, this man to rule over us. And so Jesus would appear to have no authority, really, in substance, no way of being able to show his authority that the welcome of the Psalms would seem to suggest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Those who appear to be in charge, ultimately the Romans, Pilate, the symbol of Roman rule, and the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, those who were in positions of authority within the state, the civil religious state, they were the ones who seemed to have the upper hand. And yet the same Jesus who seemed to ebb away his authority during the week is the same Jesus who stood before his disciples after his resurrection and said this. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, the end of Matthew's gospel, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to be everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the How do we make sense of that? Well, let's read part of the ongoing story of that first Holy Week. First of all, from Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, following on really from what we read last Sunday. And in verse 27, we read that the disciples... And Jesus arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Notice how much they emphasized authority. And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? or of human origin, tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, because they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You see, authority is not just about wearing the right kind of clothes, holding the right kind of position, having even the right kind of answers, or in this case, the right kind of clever questions. Authority is far more substantive than that. And truly, It's something that stands through the ebb and flow of history, of time, or indeed of human experience. You know the story. The religious leaders are looking for a way to trap Jesus. 
throughout this whole story, we see them. Basically, what they're trying to do is get Jesus to discredit himself in front of the people, for Jesus to be seen to be a fool, but not just a fool, but a dangerous and maybe diabolical fool. And lastly, for Jesus to say something which will get him into trouble with the Romans. Because if religious leaders, however much they had the pomp and circumstance of office, you only too well, and again we know that from the Holy Week story, that the only person who ultimately had the power and authority to do something about Jesus was the Romans. And so they were playing a game. They were using human wisdom, their own scheming wisdom in order to try and trap Jesus. Later on, we'll see that. That becomes very obvious. And so even asking this question, by what authority are you doing these things? They're trying to trap him. And you see in the discussion that goes on, the Jesus who looks and sees into the hearts and minds of people, and again, the events of Holy Week make that obvious. He knew what was going on. He was not a victim of powers and forces and personalities and peoples that were greater than him. He had already told the disciples what was going to happen. God had already foretold in his prophetic what what was going to happen. So this is not a series of events that are outside the control of Jesus. Rather, Jesus is in the midst of these events, and although outwardly appears not to have any authority, well, let's be honest, who's in charge here when he's asked this question? The religious leaders talk amongst themselves. They know the position they're in is very vulnerable, despite the outward sign they're actually very powerless. And so Jesus refuses to play their game. Jesus refuses to become captive of a, or a prisoner of their attempts. Indeed, in many ways, he not only transcends this, but turns the tables on them. And can I suggest this morning one of the signs of the authority of Jesus and of who he is, indeed the authority of God himself and who he is, is that actually God does that. That might be quite shocking to some of us this morning, that God delights in taking and turning the tables against us or against humanity. But after all, is that not what we've read in a number of occasions during this past period, what the psalmist, indeed the Old Testament, talks about? Psalm 2, we've mentioned this often. Why do the nations conspire on the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And then we read this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hero. And I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son. Today I become your father. And certainly the book of Revelation clearly shows that at the end of time, and indeed throughout human history, depending on your understanding of the book of Revelation, but if it is an unfolding, a series, three actually unfoldings of the history of the world, God does at times turn the tables against a fallen, sinful, and rebellion humanity who will not have God's authority acknowledged or followed. And he does, in that sense, 
mock our paltry and pathetic attempts to get one up on him. And Jesus does that here. And Jesus does that as the Lord of the church on his church when it too tries to do the same. The religious authorities, those who should have welcomed him, those who should have recognized, those who had the book after all, let's be honest, they had half of this book in their hands. And knew it probably better than any of us, including the minister, in a sense of knowing the, the words, holding to a form of religion. But not only denying, but have little knowledge of his power and his transforming abilities. And Jesus shows his authority by saying, do you think I'm going to play your silly game? You've got another thought coming to you. And then later on in verse 13, chapter 12 of verse 13, let's read this. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? The poll tax. But Jesus, you, their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to him, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God? You see, as the week goes on, those who are trying to gain back public authority are, are getting more desperate, but also getting, in some ways, more cunning. They send these Pharisees and Herodias. Now, you've, again, we can read this and not, not appreciate just ironic and hypocritical the whole thing are. The Pharisees were, in many ways, the evangelicals of the day. They were the ones who held to the law of the Old Testament. They knew their Bibles, and they had been used by God, undoubtedly used by God, in the period, that intertestamental period, that sounds quite painful, they had been used by God to bring Israel back, at least in some ways, into a line with God's Word. But you see, that's always a danger. We become not people of the book in the sense of engaging with and allowing it to inform us and transform us and renew us as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to transform the people of God. We take the book as a book, as a series of instructions. Depending on our mindset, we become law keepers and law abiders. And like the Pharisees, that fuels our self-righteousness so that we can point the finger to others. And beside the Pharisees, there were these Herodians. Now, they were very different. They were a group within the parliament in Jerusalem who supported King Herod, a more godless king you couldn't imagine, a puppet king of the Romans. A king who had, at least his family, who had their hands steeped in the blood of the Jewish people even, in order to secure their power and authority. They did everything 
sexually, morally, in other ways, they were a complete contradiction of the law of God that the Pharisees upheld. You could not imagine, for many ways, two unlikely groups to be together. But you've often noticed that, you know. They always say, remember, well, Moses found this, didn't he? Remember, the, the Egyptians, they were fighting amongst each other, remember? And he tried to stand in between to stop the fight. And what happens? The two folk were fighting each other turn and turn against you. Your enemy is our enemy. And they come and they use very fine sounding words. They all sound very orthodox. Indeed they are. We know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It's so true and yet it's said with a lying heart and a deceitful tongue. Oh, the hypocrisy of the human heart. How deceitful it truly is. And God is not taken in beneath and behind those smooth-sounding right words. There's hearts who follow not the authority of God, but the rule of self and sin and man. And the trick question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it? Well, again, I've explained why. That's a leading question. And Jesus is, in many ways, stuck, you would think. But again, he shows his authority. He shows that wisdom from a God. Many of our fellowship groups are looking at the book of wisdom. A few weeks ago, in a sermon, we opened up the book of Proverbs. That divine wisdom that comes from God alone, who knows our hearts and who sees all things, is able to equip not just the Son of God, the Lord of glory, but his children with that wisdom from above that sees through the talk, that sees through the hypocrisy, who's not swayed by public opinion or the sway of a populist or a demagogue, and knows really what's going on. Why are you trying to trap me? And so they bring the coin. And the coin reveals the face of Caesar. And Jesus here very, very carefully, and in a way which has led to much discussion, I would have to say, within the church down through the years, opens up to us the whole question of who really is in charge. In terms of its civil powers, we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. We render unto the civil powers, the rulers, that which is the civil powers. But can I ask you a question online? Who ultimately is in charge of everything? Well, who is it? Even with your mask on, let me hear it. God. That first century statement Jesus is Lord. You know, my friends, that's what got the church eventually into trouble with the Roman powers. We've been looking this week at our devotionals, at some verses of the book of Hebrews, and just as a wee introduction, explained that they sense, the, right, the writer senses that the Christians that he's writing to are beginning to become aware of the fact that the civil power, the Romans, were going to become increasingly unhappy with the church. Why? Because they were affirming, because that phrase, Lord, we think of the lords, we think of people who sit in the house of the lords and whatever else, and what, what authority have they got? But we're not, that's not the understanding of the Lord in the Bible. The Lord is the one who is sovereign over all, who walks through the vastness of the universe, who holds this little earth in his hand, and all the purposes of history are held by him. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the supreme pontiff. 
whether it was Caesar in Rome, or Nicola in Edinburgh, or Boris in London, all are subject to him. Indeed, both Paul and Peter in their letters make it clear that these civil powers have been appointed by God and they have responsibilities under God to be able to manage the affairs of the nation. So yes, as Christians, we are law keepers and law abiders. We do not rebel against the civil state. But when the civil state tries to be like the law and take to itself powers and potentates that only belong to him, That's why I've mentioned our right concern. At least we should have a right concern about the role of the state telling the church what to do, not to do. That's why at the moment, and it won't get very far, and it might seem at the moment not to be necessary because very understandably so we're told to be careful. I understand that, but why at the moment 200 church leaders are seeking a judicial review of the government in London's um, shutting down of the churches. A very narrow line. You should have no other gods before me. He's ultimately in charge. And Jesus shows that in the way he so cleverly and so ably responds to that question. And then lastly, in chapter 12 and verse 35, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. It seems ironic, doesn't it? They listened to him with delight then. And a couple of days later, they were shouting, at least a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were shouting for his death. How fickle is the human heart? And what's Jesus saying here? Well, if ultimate authority lies with God, he is the one who is overarching authority over all things, including the power of the state and the rulers who are appointed by him to govern and to ensure that people live in justice and security and well-being, all the right things which rightly our state attends to. Ultimately, he's also the one who has that supreme prophetic authority. It's interesting, this quote here. You'll notice I said just a minute or two ago, well, maybe more than a minute or two now, that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they quoted from the Psalms, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. If, if people had carried out a poll, there wasn't these kind of polls that are carried out as they are nowadays. People carried out a poll as to the crowd, as to what they were expecting when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Well, there would have been various answers, and I mentioned that last week, but one of the main answers, and in many ways one of the answers that would have seemed very right, was, well, he's coming to be like King David. He's going to be a king in Zion. They would remember, at least they would, the men would remember, but having been told this in the synagogues, the women, I'm afraid, often were neglected in terms of that type of teaching, but the, certainly many of them remembered the references to that in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 7, you can read it when you go home. First Kings chapter 9, Second Samuel chapter 7 to David, First Kings chapter 9 to Solomon. That promise that a forever kingdom would be established, a Davidic, Davidic a kingdom. And so people would have said, well, this is, you know, this is the man. He's going to come, he's going to fling out these Romans. 
He's going to sort out these hypocritical religious leaders. He's going to sit in the royal palace that Herod built, but he's going to claim it for himself. And he's going to bring in a new era where Israel once again will be a mighty nation as it was in the time of Solomon. And the Romans will have to recognize it and work with us and, or else. But you see, my friends, Jesus' authority lies not in earthly pomp and circumstance. He quotes this very saying again from the book of Psalms to remind them that David, prompted, we're told, speaking by the Holy Spirit, prophetically spoke of the one who was going to come, who was not going to be his son. Yes, Jesus was born of the house and line of David, born in Bethlehem, and we'll be reflecting upon that in a few weeks' time when Christmas arrives. But he is greater than that. David's greater son, as the hymn writer puts it. He is the fulfillment of all that David and Solomon looked forward to. The one who is my Lord. And so the wise men. Journeying to Jerusalem. Who were they looking for? Why did Herod get so edgy? We're looking for the king. That's to be born. Peter, in the book of Acts, again we saw this when we looked at the story of the book of Acts, quotes these verses and some more from the Psalms to affirm that the one who comes is not an earthly ruler whose pomp and power and authority is for a season and is dependent either on military might if you're a totalitarian state. And let's be honest, thankfully we don't live in China. Do you see what happened to them? People who were COVID breakers and folk were affected, but their doors were barricaded and they were just snatched off the street. But they have the power to do that, to force their authority on people. But history tells us that empires like that come and they go. And the civil power in our country recognizes it doesn't have that kind of authority. Its authority depends on what you, as the public eyes, the public will accept. But Jesus' authority does not depend on either of this, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so the New Testament affirms that this Jesus, the one who said all authority and power is given to me, is indeed supremely in charge. First Timothy in chapter 17 where the writer talks about trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And now at the very end of that little section, he says this, Now to the King, capital K, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then at the very end of his letter, now to that, that God which will bring all things together in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be the honor and might forever. And you know, as Paul's writing that, dictating that, you know where he's living? He's living under house arrest under Caesar's rule. It would look as if human power had the final word. That Paul who was going to be put to death under the rule of Caesar is nonetheless at the very end of his life even more convinced that there is only one God, there is only one authority, there is only one king, and that is the one who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And so that's why in the book of Revelation, 
that kingship, that authority of Jesus, that rule and reign of Jesus is so clearly and publicly testified to. Just a couple of verses, just to affirm what we know. Great and marvelous are your deeds. This is the crowd holding their harps before the God, the God who rules and reigns. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then again, at the latter part of the book of Revelation, these verses, the one who comes riding on the horse, whose name is the word of God, and we read on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. By whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, do you really want to know? Do we really want to know who's in charge? Do we really want to acknowledge that there is only one who's the boss? Who sees through our paltry and, as I said, sometimes pretty pathetic attempts to make Jesus into our image and under our control. And that includes the church. Or do we bow the knee? Do we lay aside our efforts to appear to be so right? And like doubting Thomas, say, my Lord and my God. Oh, it appeared as if Jesus was losing the crowd. But for Jesus, it wasn't losing the crowd that was his concern. It was to do his Father's will. And it should be no different for us or for the church. Not what the public or the politicians say, ultimately counts. It's what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords says that is to be the final word. Amen. Let's pray together. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord. The king of glory, at his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Lo, at midnight, who is he? Praise in dark Gethsemane. Tis the Lord. O oh, wondrous story, tis the Lord, the king of glory. 
at his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Lord Jesus Christ, hear us as we pray. Amen.